Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flint. Well, Margaret, we're just coming off an important week, National Nurses Week. That's right. And that's a time when we honor the incredible work that's done by that vital player on our healthcare team, the nurse. From our nurse practitioners to our home care nurses across multiple disciplines, nurses provide so many levels of essential care in the healthcare system, and that role is growing, Mark. You know, it's a significant sector of the healthcare workforce, Margaret. As of 2012, there were over 3 million RNs and LPNs working in the field. And according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, this current trend of growth in nursing employment is expected to continue at a really brisk pace. Well, a couple of forces are driving that growth, Mark. And as healthcare gets even more team-based and patient-centered, nurses play a more pivotal role in care delivery and in managing patient care. And the population's aging, growing trend towards more folks choosing to age in place, so requires more coordinated care, certainly between primary care and the home. You know, let me give a plug for the Affordable Care Act. The number keeps on growing. I think there were 8 million on the insurance plan and maybe 4 to 6 million on the Medicaid plan. And we'll be seeing more people coming into the healthcare system. We'll see more nurse practitioners leading primary care practices and community health centers to meet that growing demand. And according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics Employment Projections, registered nursing, RN, is listed among the top occupations in terms of job growth through 2022, with the RN workforce expected to grow from 2.7 million in 2012 to 3.2 million in 2022, an increase of 19%. But show mark, it's not going to be in the same settings. It's not going to be in hospitals that we see that growth. It's really going to be in the community, in primary care, in ambulatory care, and that is a very exciting development. You're absolutely right. And if we pull the thread a little more all the way out to 2030, uh, there is another significant nursing shortage projected. Currently, the number of organizations are working to address the shortfall to make more slots available at nursing schools, nursing organizations across the country to help facilitate trained nurses to the highest practice level they can achieve. It's a healthcare workforce issue that's going to require a concerted effort to meet the growing demands. That's right. It's not just RNs and nurse practitioners, but clinical specialists, nurse midwives, anesthetists, and a host of uh, researchers and educators as well. And that's something that our guest today knows quite a bit about. Dr. Beverly Malone is the CEO of the National League for Nursing, an organization that's dedicated to improving the education for nurses and to meet the growing demands in healthcare. She has some terrific insights. She's worked as a top administrator in leadership capacities both in the U.S. and in England. So really looking forward to hearing her perspective as we uh, come off of National Nurses Week. And we're going to also be hearing from Lori Robertson, who checks in from factcheck.org. She's always on the hunt for Miss Truth spoken about health policy in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love hearing from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Beverly Malone in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. 
The nation's uninsured rate is the lowest it's been since Gallup began tracking such numbers back in 2008. The rate peaked at about 18 percent uninsured in the third quarter of 2013, before the start of open enrollment last October. The national uninsured rate is now down to 13.4 percent. Analysts credit the last-minute surge towards the end of open enrollment for the significant decrease. Certain states, though, like Texas and Louisiana, still have significantly higher rates of uninsured residents. Still, there are hiccups and headaches across the country when it comes to the functionality of the state-run insurance marketplaces. Oregon has scrapped its troubled site entirely, defaulting instead to the federal exchange. Now Massachusetts is considering the same option as a way past their trouble-plagued system, which they have deemed too costly to fix. Plan A is to find a suitable replacement exchange. Plan B would be to be prepared to switch to the federal exchange as well. Ironically, Massachusetts has had near-universal coverage for years. And speaking of Massachusetts, recent statistics out of that state show that in the four years since Massachusetts passed a requirement for mandatory coverage, the death rate began to drop. About 3 percent, a modest number, but statistically significant to warrant a connection. In a report published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, a direct correlation was drawn between coverage, access to primary care, and improved outcomes over time. The biggest improvement in life expectancy came for minorities, including African Americans, Asians, and Latinos, whose death rates dropped 4.6 percent during that time. The study builds on prior research showing health coverage is reducing income and racial disparities in Massachusetts. And while millions of Americans are newly insured, there are still millions who aren't. And who pays for that uninsured care in the age of Obamacare? A recent review parsed the answer out. A study showed just how much it would cost to care for that population. Health care providers faced $75 billion to $85 billion in care costs for the uninsured and people who are struggling to pay their medical bills. According to new estimates in the journal Health Affairs, the Urban Institute researchers calculated hospitals provided about $45 billion of the uncompensated care. Publicly supported community providers delivered about $20 billion and office-based physicians another $11 billion. And we know this generation of American youth are heavier than any of the preceding generations. Add a significant uptick in diabetes to go along with the mix, both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. In a significant study charting millions of children up to age 19 from 2000 to 2009, the rise was significant. The prevalence of type 1 diabetes increased 21 percent. The prevalence of type 2 diabetes among those ages rose 30 percent during that period. The study's authors speculated the uptick in type 2 diabetes may result from minority population growth, obesity, exposure to diabetes in utero, and perhaps endocrine-disrupting chemicals. The increase will have public health consequences, according to researchers. And American women are more likely to die in childbirth now than they were two decades ago, making the U.S. one of the few countries where the risks from childbirth have risen in the past generation. That, according to data released by the World Health Organization recently, death rates have fallen by 45 percent globally since 1990 to an estimated 289,000 women in 2013. Giving birth in the U.S. remains far safer than most countries, with only 28 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births in 2013. But that is 136 percent higher than the 1990 mortality rate when only 12 mothers died for every 100,000 births. No other country recorded such a large percentage increase, although a few other rich countries also failed to keep maternal mortality in check. WHO experts say the increase in the U.S. mortality rate may be a statistical blip, or it might be due to increased risk from obesity, diabetes, and older women giving birth. 
There's also a situation in the U.S. where a considerable portion of the population did not have access to health care during that time period. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Beverly Malone, Chief Executive Officer of the National League for Nursing, a membership organization for nurse faculty and leaders in nursing education. Dr. Malone was recently appointed to the Advisory Committee in the Office of Minority Health at the Department of Health and Human Services, which is dedicated to improving the health status of ethnic minorities and eliminating health disparities in this country. Dr. Malone also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Health at the Department of Health and Human Services under President Bill Clinton. Dr. Malone has served as president of the American Nurses Association, as well as general secretary of the Royal College of Nursing in the United Kingdom, and serves on the board of trustees at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Dr. Malone, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much, and happy uh, Martin Luther King Day. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, thanks so much. And Barbara, it is that time of year where we really honor the legacy of Dr. King, whose quest for equality often touched on the need to correct the lack of access to health care for all. And you were recently appointed to the advisory board of the Office of Minority Health at the DHHS. And tell us about the mission and the work underway at the office to eradicate racial health disparities. And how are we doing on that front? And how do you see the Affordable Care Act as having an impact on the needs of all people? Well, when we talk about diversity and inclusiveness, we spread it out in terms of not just racial and ethnic diversity, but all types of diversity. So that's the bigger picture, but I'll focus in on the representation and that we're still struggling. All the professions are still struggling with that. No one's got it right that the people who are providing the service look like the people who are receiving the service to some degree. For nursing in particular, that's the one that I've given the majority of my time to. And when we are compared to the other disciplines, we look fairly decent. Uh, but the truth is we're still not there. We're, we still don't have enough nurses representing those patients who are receiving the care. Um, 13%, 14% of the population who are of the workforce is about African American in terms of nursing. But that's still a big leap in terms of how services are provided because the, the burden of illness is frequently on the underserved and the poor. And so that means that the people who are most dire in terms of needs of services, they are people frequently from ethnic and racial backgrounds. So, Dr. Malone, this is an area that has gotten so much focus and attention, deservedly so, within the nursing profession, both on developing community-based health initiatives. Maybe you could speak a little bit to some of these uh, community-based health initiatives from your perspective that you think have the most promise. I think that my colleague, Dr. Mary Naylor from the University of Pennsylvania, is doing a lot of creative work around that. She's a trailblazer in terms of understanding that the transition uh, is the issue and that transitions into the community. But most people want to be in their homes. They don't want to be in healthcare facilities. They don't want to be in hospitals. Hospitals should be just a path. Mary has been doing a lot of work around that, how nurses work effectively to make those transitions. And, and when there's not enough physicians out there who are providing primary care services, that nurses are there to make sure that the needs of the patients are met. But we need more advanced practice nurses to do that. And 
So there's a whole piece around that's tied to having enough providers and getting the kind of funding from Congress to make sure that those providers are prepared. Nurses tend to stay in the communities where they come from. If you really prepare nurses, they will not move away from their environments. I think probably because we're women to some degree, and our families and our roots are there, and so we tend to stay. Well, let's delve a little deeper into the the framing up of the the challenges that nursing faces in this sort of so many pressures are being brought to bear on the nursing profession. So where do you see the biggest challenges lying ahead, and what, what kinds of new collaborations are being called out for uh, to meet those growing demands? Well, you know, the the nice thing is I'm a baby boomer myself, and so I know that we are a different breed from the previous generation and that we're going to be more demanding and expect more. We're going to want to be in our familiar settings, and, and we're going to be healthier, and it's going to take us longer to get ill. So the the challenge is is the care of the older adult. How are we going to do that? Most providers don't go into the care of older adults. So we've got this whole challenge about how to make sure that nurses and other providers get into taking care of the older adult. Here at the National League for Nursing, we have seven centers, and one of our centers that we have is excellence in the care of older adults. And, and that one is about how we can help faculty be prepared to share information with students, get them turned on about working with the older adult. So we've got to indoctrinate the faculty. The other thing is this thing about transitioning from nursing home into hospital and back to nursing home. Uh, It can be one of the most traumatic transitions around uh, so that if we can provide services and bring those services to whatever facility they're at, that we're already doing so much more in terms of stabilizing that older adult Mm -hmm. and making sure that they have as bright a future and time as possible and as active a time as possible. We're speaking today with Dr. Beverly Malone, Chief Executive Officer of the National League for Nursing, a membership organization for nurse faculty and leaders in nursing education. Dr. Malone is on the advisory committee at the Office of Minority Health in the Department of Health and Human Services, which is dedicated to eliminating health disparities in this country. So, Beverly, you participated in the Institute of Medicine's groundbreaking 2010 report on the future of nursing. I think you have called the release of that report. Tell us why that report is so vital to the path forward and how you and the NLN are helping to make sure that the recommendations contained within that report are being implemented. Well, they're all issues that we have been working on for a long time, but we've never had a coordinated, evidence-based IOM report that says these are the issues and we've got to do something about them. And they're basically like leadership is a major issue. Nurses who have a very... Uh, interesting perspective about patients. I mean, we're with them 24 hours a day, and so we know them in a very different way than other providers. Frequently, while we're listed as people who need to be on boards, we're not there. That's one of the big issues in terms of leadership that the IOM report talked about. Another one was that we have at least three different ways to become a nurse, a diploma, associate degree, and baccalaureate degree. And there's not a good ladder to get to the baccalaureate degree. 
And so one of the things that the report says very clearly is there has to be that academic progression and that we have to make it as easy and smooth as possible for that nurse who started out as a, an associate degree or a diploma nurse to move up into the baccalaureate or to the master's degree. And then the third one had to do with there's just not enough data. We don't know what we need. I think the government appointed uh, a committee, an uh, organization to do that work but they never funded it, so we still don't have the data. Then every nurse should practice to his or her fullest scope that they have been prepared. And the report said very clearly that if we're going to meet the Affordable Care Act issues of another 30 million new people on the list, we're going to have to have more nurses prepared at that advanced practice level. And the thing that's different about the report is it brings all of nursing together and it verifies that this was not a nursing-derived report, that it was others and the IOM, the Institute of Medicine, who said, these are the issues, this is what we have to do. Dr. Miller, tell us a little bit about the National League uh, for Nursing, which was founded 120 years ago. Tell us about the educational directives that you have going on and how people might be engaged with it. The faculty piece to promote and to build a strong and diverse nursing workforce, the diversity issue is in there, that it's not just good enough to prepare students. It has to be that it advances the health of this nation. So we feel very connected to what's going on in terms of the Affordable Care Act. It's the oldest nursing organization in the country, and it's based on four core values of caring, integrity, diversity, and excellence. And the kind of programs that we have are leadership programs uh, in terms of a leadership center, a transformational leadership center. We have a care of the older adult center, we have an innovation in simulation and technology because so much of things changing is going to be around innovations in simulation. We have a, a leadership center for uh, diversity and global initiatives. Then we have one for the advancement of the science of nursing education. And that's the idea if you need evidence-based nursing practice. Right now, so much of nursing education and maybe other types of education is sort of the way we were taught, we teach. And we've got to change that. We've got to move it to an evidence-based system, just like the IOM report was evidence-based. Nursing education needs to be evidence-based. And then there's the Center for Assessment and Evaluation and the Center for Academic and Clinical Transitions, which is about academic progressions, about how to move that associate degree or diploma nurse to his or her baccalaureate or master's degree, or how to move them from the baccalaureate degree to the doctoral degree. All of those are transitions, and all of those are academic progressions. So the League is involved in all types of programs that revolve around those seven centers, and we engage with 39,000 individual members, about 1,200 schools of nursing. All of them are very committed to seeing us rev up what we need to do to make sure that the programs that are preparing nurses are ones that actually move nurses to advance the nation's health.
Well, Dr. Malone, I really appreciate that uh, strong uh, emphasis and call for both innovation and evidence-based practice, certainly two drivers that underlie our community health center organization, which in turn is supported by just an exemplary primary care and advanced practice nursing workforce. We like to look globally around the world, look at best practices, uh, see what we can learn, not just what we can teach. And I know that you've had a very global perspective through serving uh, in the United Kingdom Kingdom is the executive director of the Royal College of Nursing. Uh, you've twice been a delegate to the World Health Assembly, once appointed by President Clinton and then again by British Prime Minister Tony Blair. So you have a very global understanding of uh, health care, health care delivery issues and international nursing issues. Maybe you could share with us uh, just a little bit. What did you learn from your work in the UK and these global experiences that you think is uh, applicable to the work that you are trying to facilitate here in the United States? You know, it was so interesting because one of the things my colleagues in the UK would ask me, who's best? I mean, who does it best? Or what's the difference between the US and the UK? And it, it, it really depends on what piece you look at. Amazingly, the UK is ahead of us in some of the innovation that they're doing with, with nurses. Some nurses are performing surgery. So I was a little awestruck by that. But at the same time, there's no one who has a, a more well-developed, educationally promoted workforce than the U.S. The things we've been talking about today, the advanced practice, those are really striking characteristics of the U.S. healthcare system. So the kinds of things that I learned that were all more similar than we are different, and I, I guess that's not as profound as it could be, but it's the truth that I went there thinking, oh, it's going to be so incredibly different. And it was different. Language was different. Uh, there were other differences. But bottom line, patients are people, and providers like nurses and physicians, we provide services. So I think that's a pretty big learning thing for providers from the U.S. to understand that our colleagues, whether we're talking about the U.K. or whether we're talking about sub-Saharan Africa, that, that we are more similar than different. The other thing was that they have a very uh, acute way of testing, whether it's medication or whether it's technology. There's a whole system of that that is used in the UK and that I don't think we have as clearly here. I know we have our FDA and other, but it just seems that their system is a little bit ahead of us in terms of uh, making sure that whatever the product is, that it has been questioned and that it remains questioned and that everyone knows that there's a big question mark beside of it. The other thing I was fascinated with is the educational system is totally different for nurses than it is here in that we produce a generalist who is either at the associate degree, the diploma, or the baccalaureate level. In the U.K., they produce a specialist kind of, you know, the psychiatric mental health nurse, uh, the obstetrical nurse, the pediatric nurse as the first graduation level. So that means they have a slightly like an army of providers who are pediatric nurses, an army of nurses who are psychiatric mental health nurses. And ours are usually not there until the graduate level. So there are pros and cons to that. But I have to say that I totally enjoyed working in collaboration with Tony Blair because one of the big differences was that while Mr. Clinton, the president, 
was very attuned to nursing. His mom was a nurse. I never really sat down for 45 minutes and talked just about nursing with President Clinton. But twice a year, I would sit down with Prime Minister Blair and speak with him about where nursing was and what I thought could be done differently. So I thought that was a pretty big difference. We've been speaking today with Dr. Beverly Malone, Chief Executive Officer of the National League for Nursing, a member of the Advisory Committee at the Office for Minority Health. You can learn more about her work by going to www.nln.org. Dr. Malone, thanks so much for taking the time, uh, sharing with us about the great work that you're doing on Conversations on Health. Delighted. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, did the Affordable Care Act increase income tax brackets, capital gains, and estate taxes in 2014? That's what a viral email says, but it's not true. The anonymous message claims that several taxes went up on January 1st, 2014 because of the Affordable Care Act, but none of the taxes listed had anything to do with the health care law. Most were part of the fiscal cliff package that Congress passed on January 1st, 2013. For instance, the top income tax rate did go back up to 39.6% for singles making more than $400,000 a year and couples earning more than $450,000. That increase was part of the fiscal cliff deal in 20. 13. Capital gains and dividend tax rates also went up under that deal, and not as much as the viral message claims. The top capital gains rate and dividend rates are both now 20% for those earning more than 400000 or 450000 a year. The email wrongly says that the estate tax went from 0% to 55%. The tax is still 0% for anyone who dies this year and has an estate worth less than $5.3 million. The top rate is, thanks to the fiscal cliff deal, 40%. This message goes on to claim that the tax increases it lists were, quote, passed with only Democratic votes. Not true at all. The fiscal cliff deal passed by a vote of 89 to 8 in the Senate with 40 Republicans in favor. In the House, 85 Republicans voted in favor. The ACA does include some tax increases, such as a 3.8% tax on net investment income, and an additional Medicare tax of 0.9% for those earning more than $200,000 a year or $250,000 for couples. But that increase is nowhere to be found in this bogus viral message. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. According to Michigan organic farmer Michelle Lutz, healthcare spends too much time and money trying to fix the problems that are caused by a poor diet. 
But the powers that be at the Henry Ford West Bloomfield Hospital agree with her. For years, she had offered organic food growing and cooking demonstrations at the healthcare facility just outside of Detroit. But when officials drew up plans to renovate the hospital three years ago, they decided to take it to the next level. And thanks to an anonymous donor, a million-dollar certified organic hydroponic greenhouse and garden were built, and Lutz was hired away from her farm to run the operation. You know, a rather very generous man that believed in the vision of health and wellness here and realized that we really wanted to change the way that food culture was done in a healthcare setting. When you have the opportunity to heal someone, it is very important that what they are eating becomes part of that plan. That cliche saying we are what we eat is absolutely true. In what is believed to be the first of its kind on-site greenhouse at a hospital in this country, the facility now provides most of the nutritional organic greens, vegetables, fruits, and herbs used in the food that is prepared there, not just for patients who have come there to heal, but for their families and hospital staff as well. The layout was very important so that we could have a very complex, diverse variety of herbs and produce for the kitchen to use. It's rather seasonal, so we are not gluttons about our energy uses or our resources. In the wintertime and in the fall, we changed to more of a cold-tolerant crop, our Our temperature is never set above 70 degrees in that greenhouse. And then in the summertime, like this time, we are now transitioning to to the point where we're picking cherry tomatoes and we have sweet peppers and things like that that we will be supplying for the kitchen. Predicated on the idea that modern health care has to be more about well care than sick care, Lutz says there is an educational component to the program that's ongoing and multi-generational. Right now we are averaging 3,000 students per academic school year that go through our Healthy Habit program. And so we are lucky enough to have kind of a dual combination here of offerings. We have a demonstration kitchen inside of our hospital, and then we have the greenhouse right behind the hospital. So we utilize those components to make sure that we impress upon, especially our youth in our community, what does it take to you know, have the foundation of healthy habits. And hospital chefs work to incorporate more super greens and medicinal herbs into their recipes, reducing their reliance on sugar and salt for flavors. You know, when the weather is nice and our employees are often walking around, we know that our healthcare employees are sometimes um, the least, uh, their priority is to take care of themselves because they're so used to taking care of others. So it is not uncommon for a nice day for us to have a nice stream of doctors and nurses out there, number one, just for a reprieve just to be in a beautiful setting and how therapeutic that can be. But to also, you know, have them ask questions about what it is that we're growing and how is that being used. The food that is grown in that greenhouse goes to the main kitchen. So whether it is served to our patients or served to our employees and our guests, it's all the same. The nation's first hospital-based year-round certified organic hydroponic greenhouse, one that provides fresh fruits and vegetables to patients who are healing and the clinicians working to heal them, improving health and well-being for the system community-wide and teaching the next generation about the benefits of organic produce for a healthier diet? The idea of being just a hospital doesn't work anymore. You have to be a community center for wellness. Now, that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.